I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined every week by badass and brilliant women of color. Today, our main event conversation, Lil' Kim, the original Queen Bee, and the cancer of colorism. Our hot topics, Congressional Caucus for Black Girls and Women, it's a first. Hot topic two, the good black man, the feminist black man. We talk the mask of masculinity. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Yabba Blay, Joan Morgan, Lene Denise. Dr. Yabba Blay is a professor, producer, and publisher. Dr. Blay is the Dan Blue Endowed Chair in Political Science at North Carolina Central University, the creator of the multimedia global project Pretty Period, and publisher and editor-in-chief of Black Print Press. Dr. Blay is a global expert on issues of colorism and identity. Lene Denise is a global DJ scholar, cultural producer, and a musical essayist whose work, which she calls Entertainment with a Thesis, has taken her across the United States to London, Holland, and South Africa as she researches black social and political movements to present the dynamic range of music of the diaspora. Lene Denise is founder of Wild Seed Cultural Group. Joan Morgan is a veteran cultural critic, author of the critically acclaimed When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost, My Life as a Hip-Hop Feminist, and creator of Emily Jane. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hello. Hi. Let's start with our main event, Lil' Kim, hip-hop's original Queen Bee, from brown skin, cutie, and beauty to somebody virtually unrecognizable. Hip-hop lovers hear the name Lil' Kim, and they probably go back to November 1996, and this. I'm Mama, Miss Savannah. Usually rock the product, sometimes the butter. Stick you for your creamy and your riches. Jaja Kabor, Demi Moore, Prince Diane, and all them rich misses. Puff Daddy pumped the Hummer for the summer. I follow in the E class with the goggles. 96 model, bad click on a stroll. Tell them how we go. Cruise control, nothing make a woman feel better than Berettas and Amarettas. But the letters and mad cheddars. Chilling in the biz with my amigos. Trying to stick a brother for his peso. If his peso. That single from her debut album, Hardcore, announced the arrival of a barely five-foot, brown-skinned woman with a mic, swagger, and lyrics that offered a sexual freedom. In a February 2016 article in Complex.com, Dr. Treva B. Lindsay, an assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Ohio State University, explored that album's game-changing power in hip-hop. Dr. Lindsay wrote that it signaled the rise and rise of the female MC and described the debut double platinum selling album with its three number one singles as, quote, a watershed moment in hip hop, unquote. Today, it is neither her lyrics nor her hip hop game that brings us to this mic. Little Kim just published a series of pictures on Instagram announcing the arrival of Little Kim season, and it was her visual that caught our attention. Honestly, the pictures stopped me in my tracks. 1996 Kim was brown-skinned with a button nose, a pretty brown-skinned young woman. Today, her color is not just considerably lighter, but almost white, 
In fact, I'm not sure there is a color to describe her complexion. Her nose is dead, dead straight. Her now curated cheekbones could cut glass. I wrote about Little Kim's ongoing visual transformation in Ebony.com in August 2012 after a picture of her transformation dropped then. But these latest images once again sent social media into a frenzy, prompted headlines, TV discussions, and debate. In The Daily Beast, Dr. Yaba Blay wrote, and I quote, She's changed in ways that words can't even begin to capture. And it hurts. Online, we're trying to make sense of it, wondering why she would do this to herself. Yet, we already know why. We live in the same world she does, and all over that world, people of color use a variety of chemicals to lighten the complexion of their skin. In fact, wherever there are people of color, Southeast Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa, and the United States, there is skin bleaching. In places where the majority of the population has browner or darker skin, wearing relatively lighter skin provides social advantage. And for women particularly, the social advantage that comes with having lighter skin is being seen and thus treated as more beautiful and attractive." Unquote. In an interview on radio station Power 105.1, Little Kim talked about reinventing herself and was asked by radio host Charlemagne about having surgery. Take a listen. Everybody who knows me knows that I reinvent myself every time that I come out officially. Let me ask you a question. You, was all, you was a beautiful, you're a beautiful chick. You always was a beautiful chick growing Thank up. You used to go to the hardcore poster. Thank you. Like, why did you decide <laughs> to get you. so much cosmetic surgery? Why would you ask me that? Because we want to know. But there's so many people who have surgery, you know? So I don't know where that question is coming from. In her piece, Dr. Blay connects Kim's articulated insecurities with society's approach to black women and our beauty, ourselves. Dr. Blay writes, and I quote, she's admitted to not feeling pretty enough. She's reflected on having lovers cheat on her with women who were more European looking. We're literally watching her attempt to create a new reality for herself. Hers is an image that reminds us of the pervasive and insidious power of whiteness. We, as black women and girls, are assaulted by it every day. We're told our skin is too dark, our hair is too kinky, our bodies are too big, unquote. But as Dr. Blaine notes, colorism is bigger than Kim and bigger than hip hop. Remember Afrobeat King Fela Kuti's Yellow Fever? Your eyes go yellow, your yash go yellow, your face go yellow, your body go weak. I say, but later, if you know die inside, the yellow go fade away. Artificial cash, you be man or woman. Now you go cash them yourself. Now your money go do them for you. You go yellow, pass yellow. You go cash mustache for face. You go get your double color. Your ears go black like a coal. You self go think, say you define. Who say you fine? Bella was referring to the colorism that plagues Nigeria for both men and women. Colorism is individual and institutional. It is global. It is big business, a multi-billion dollar business. So let's talk Little Kim and the global cancer of colorism. Dr. Yaba Blay, let me start with you. Like so many women um, in my circle, in my age group, those of us 
um, I think who were really moved by Kim when she debuted in the mid-90s when we saw the image that was posted a few weeks ago. Um, For me, I I know that I was saddened um, because, if I'm honest, I know that we've been watching Kim transform for many years now. Um, And interestingly enough, Esther, the piece that she wrote in 2012, I remember when that piece came out because it came out shortly after another image had surfaced of Kim and the Internet was going crazy. And I looked at that image in comparison to this image now four years later, and it's even worse, you know. And so for me, on the one hand, there's Yaba, there's Dr. Blay, who does this work on skin bleaching and colorism. And so I can respond and think about Kim in a kind of research or academic way. But then there's also just Yaba, um, the woman, <laughs> the girl still, who looks at earlier images of Kim and sees a regular round-the-way girl who felt like I knew who Kim was um, back in the 90s um, based upon her style, based upon her lyrics. Um, And so seeing her now kind of felt like, oh, no, you know, what's happened to our sister? Um, And so when I wrote the piece for the Daily Beast, I think I was also responding to the kind of online responses that I was seeing and what I was seeing, of course, were memes um, and jokes and people, you know, kind of holding their chest like, oh, my God, I can't believe she's done this. Why would she do this? She was such a pretty girl. I don't understand. And I'm like, I don't know that we're being honest, right? Um, We understand why she's done this. Yes, it is extreme. No, everyone doesn't do this. But we've heard Kim talk about her own self-image Um, issues over the course of her life. We know her kind of personal history as much as we follow uh, mainstream gossip. Um, And then we know the music industry that she's a part of. And so in a world where Beyonce is the world's most um, loved and and supported and successful female entertainer, Kim is trying to to get in, um, if that makes sense. And it's interesting looking at that collage of images that she posted One of those images reminds me, I'm not saying that she looks like Beyonce, but it reminds me of an image that I've seen of Beyonce um, in the past. And so it just, it saddens me that that she hasn't received enough love and affirmation um, to be protected from this. But at the same time, I understand. Jerry Morgan. As someone who, you know, wrote about Kim early in and followed her career, from the very beginning, um, I have to say the pictures are shocking, but uh, that she did this is not shocking to me. I do think that in the attempt to form like an easy narrative that we, we have to be really careful. Um, you know, Kim's issues with her self-esteem manifested really, really, really early in her career, and they weren't just about... Um, her skin coloring, you know, she was in this, you know, (laughs) I know everyone thinks of Kim and Biggie, but the truth is, is that Biggie was really with Faith. And in her head from that point, she has always had this sort of, he would have chosen me if I was like lighter skin and I look more like Faith. I mean, even the construction that dudes cheated on me with lighter skin girls. I mean, like Faith, you know, Faith was, Faith was the wife. And, and and Kim had a different position. So the fact that she's internalized all of this around skin color to me speaks 
volumes about the larger society that's produced a particular kind of um, neuroses for her around skin color. And to me, this is not about looking at a world where, like, Beyonce reigns because Beyonce is, like, black girl blonde. You know what I mean? Like, what we're looking at in those pictures with Kim is a real aspiration towards being Caucasian, not even being – there are a lot of entertainers that come out and want to look like Beyonce, like – and we see it. We see them, you know, in the kind of weaves that they choose and the kind of, like, she's a, she's a much copied artist. But what's most striking and telling to me about Kim is not the actual pictures of herself that she's posted. It's two things. It's the voice that she's affected. This sort of, there's a clip on Instagram of, like, I think it's called the Two Kimmy. Kim, the two Kimmies or something, and she's rolling around with Kim Kardashian, and it's this kind of breathy, very bad valley girl voice that she's adopted is really an aspiration towards whiteness, not lighter skinned black girl, but like whiteness. And the thing that seals that for me is the actual graphic of her mixtape is of a white queen with blonde hair. It's not of a light-skinned black girl queen, <laughs> you know, with black girl blonde hair. It is of a white woman. And so I just want to connect that back to, because I have always um, struggled with the narrative around Kim representing a kind of sexual empowerment for black women with those first albums. I mean, to me, she's always been an, an artist that's been extremely male-identified. And while mm-hmm. I will never, ever, ever take away the fact that Kim can spit and probably spits better than 95% of, like, um, M- female MCs to ever do it, her image and her sexuality was very male-constructed. And so mm-hmm. I think that we really what we thought we were getting that seemed like a confident black girl, you know, and self-constructed and, and like, liberating for, for black women, that might have been how they received it, but that was not the actual emotionality, to use Esther's words, of the young woman producing it. And so none of this is really shocking to me. All of it is particularly tragic. But honestly, I've, we're in, I saw this in 1996. Lene Denise. The 2005 mugshot that we're using as a part of the before and after, you know, picture makes me incredibly sad because we know that mainstream media has a history of darkening mugshots to further criminalize black bodies. And that's not to say that low chem skin lightening and plastic surgery isn't a real thing, but it just seems slightly disturbing to use a mugshot as an example of where she was prior to these changes to her body. I feel like, and I agree with Joan, that her album covers provide a more accurate visual record of her struggle, you know, around questions of beauty and blackness and whiteness. Um, and then further, the mugshot forced me to consider what it must have felt like to spend a year in prison for perjury and for covering up for the alleged violent behavior of the men and her management crew. So where she is now for me feels like a manifestation of her battle and sadly, like her corroboration with the brand of patriarchal hip-hop that uses, you know, European standards of beauty to determine the, de- the, the um, desirability of women and that defines the value of women by their selfless, like, loyalty to the men and their crew. I mean, that idea, you know, put her in prison. But I would also encourage people to look at her body of work 
because she addresses questions and concerns about her physical appearance and her relationship with men in the industry in much of her music, um, especially her post-prison work. One song in particular, I think it's called Shut Up, um, and she's reflective and vulnerable and defiant about people's investment in her personal decision-making. And of course, as a public figure, you know, we can't afford to fully separate personal decision from social impact, but she does address these issues through song, um, which is why so many of us gravitated towards Lil' Kim as an MC in the first place. There was an honesty there. Um, so the music cannot, should not become secondary in the analysis um, because it's information, it's a living text that should be included in the conversation. Um, this also reminded me that similarly to Nina Simone and Lauren Hill, Lil' Kim lost a lot of the money she earned as a recording artist through financial mismanagement, which included tax evasion, coupled with, I'm sure, a lot of like shady music industry business practices. So quite frankly, I feel an incredible amount of compassion for Lil' Kim. Um, she's interfaced with multiple hostile institutions and made life-altering poor decisions that may have led to some kind of break from reality. Um, I've also been thinking about two of the most important people in black music, um, our beloved Michael Joseph Jackson and Prince Rogers Nelson. Um, if we are honest, like really honest, then we can link these conversations to our witnessing of Michael, you know, lightening his skin and modifying his face. And after he passed, I spent like a full year combing through his body of work, looking for answers. And in that search, I had to relive those physical changes he made to his body and deal with the pain they caused. Um, the result of that year-long study was a conference that I produced at the Schomburg, Esther, you were a moderator, um, that had us take a deeper look into who Michael was beyond his musical brilliance and beyond him being a source of entertainment. You know, like, who was he? What, what were these issues? What, what did Joe Jackson say to him? And what did, you know, what did Motown say to him? Like, there were a number of messages that he received. And as it relates to Prince, which I'm, you know, absolutely still in a tender place around, um, we loved and celebrated him through what felt like a complete disconnection from the love of dark-skinned women's bodies. Um, part of his brand was the, like, racially ambiguous, vanity-like, highly desirable woman who was standing somewhere next to him on stage for, like, 40 years. You know, so I spent the last 12 days combing through his catalog. I am deeply in love with Prince, but I can't deny that he may have played up to the idea, for example, that he was mixed race. Um, and because, you know, like Dr. B Dr. Blay talks about the social advantages for black people that, you know, um, that comes with having lighter skin. But Prince wasn't mixed. Um, and not only were both of his parents black, but his maternal and paternal grandparents were black people from Louisiana. So I have questions there as well, like what messages did he receive as, a, you know, as an extremely light-skinned black child? And to bring it back full circle, what messages did Lil' Kim learn about her beauty and value as an arguably brown-skinned woman from our beloved Prince and Michael Jackson? You know, um, are we ready to turn that critical lens onto our heroes who had the most impact and influence on our lives, the ones that are more painful to critique. What is so powerful for me is, um, I guess I think we have an expectation that um, artistic um, talent or artistic genius and the, uh, the individual's emotionality is a consistent and similar space. And I think part of what the manifestation of the cancer of colorism reminds me of 
is just how separate the um, emotionality of an individual can be versus what, in, in the case of artists, since we're talking about artists, versus the artistic genius that they manifest. And we look for, for a consistency that when we explore someone's emotionality is, is not necessarily there. And so thinking about Little Kim as an artist, I think, takes us down a road. Who she is emotionally, which I think does connect to the, the, not just the men she loved, but she was, she was protective of that male crew who, listening to interviews of her and doing the research for this piece, basically threw her to the wolves and were, were a good, good part of the reason she ended up doing as much time as she did. Um, and so I, I think about that, that the need for, um, for us to have a more literate emotionality so that we don't condense the one with the other and think that you're looking at the same thing because often you're not necessarily looking at the same thing. And so then I, then I, take, I go from artist to society at large and I think about the larger issue of um, colorism um, Dr. Blay wrote about literally wherever there are darker skinned people, we see evidence of this phenomenal bleaching cream industry that manifests in all kinds of ways and is huge bestsellers everywhere. So in um, Nigeria, you're definitely talking about agency and desirability. In somewhere like the Caribbean, in places like um, Jamaica, you're talking about literally employment. Like you literally get the job if you're the lighter skinned um, woman or, or, or man. In, I'm sitting here in, in Ghana, where we will call it, quote, unquote, brightening. And I'm a, in, in America, I'm a chocolate-skinned, brown-skinned woman. And in Ghana, I'm, quote, unquote, hilariously light-skinned. And consistently am asked, what is the product that I use to get my skin to this complexion? And if you know me and can see me, that's a hilarious question. But it's a, a reality that shows the different ways um, colorism manifests. And so... Um, Joan talks about little Kim's aspiration does seem to be whiteness, not even a lighter skinned um, woman, but, but whiteness and or just completely nothing like who she is. The absolute antithesis of what and who she is, because I think within a relationship space and it's pure speculation, but one of the. Um, that, that, that message of who becomes the wife and who stays the side chick can become a message about worth and how your worth dictates where you stand in a man's life. And so those messages are internalized in a particular way. But you go to somewhere like Nigeria, where there are huge, huge numbers uh, in terms of bleaching and the way colorism manifests. It's a different, it's a different conversation. It's a much more um, regular, all different types of women and men going through and engaging with these um, practices. So I want I want to talk a bit more about it on a on an institutional global in an institutional global space, and ask what you see when you when you look at the industry of bleaching and how it continues to um, to grow. And what does that say to you, for you three as women, starting with you, Dr. Blay? Bleaching as an industry has to be contextualized within the, the, the global history of white supremacy. And, and for me, maybe because I've been having these conversations for so long about bleaching, I think what's important for me is to get people to understand that it is a global phenomenon, that it's not a phenomenon that just affects people in Africa or in the Caribbean or people who are considered black, but it's all people of color, which really speaks to the insidious nature of white supremacy. But also I want to 
kind of challenge us to think about like the directions in which we point the finger. So it's very easy for us to talk about the individuals, right? The people who are engaged in the practice, losing sight of the fact that there are people who make the products that they use. Mm. And what we know about <clears throat> racialized medicine is that these products, so one of the, the, the active agents in these products is hydroquinone. Hydroquinone is banned in the European Union. Most of these products are made in the European Union, which means they are made specifically for dumping in the so-called third world. And so I want us to kind of push back and challenge. So on the one hand, people use the products. On the other hand, people make the products. And so people are making these products and, and, and benefiting off of pain and trauma um, and benefiting in some very big ways. And so I, I also like to think of white supremacy as a trajectory. And I definitely hear you, Joan, when you speak about little Kim actually um, reaching towards whiteness. And, and I see that and I, and I get that. I wouldn't necessarily say that all people who bleach are because of that trajectory, um, that there's a lightness that some people are um, attempting to grasp as well, but also to understand that we are all victimized by white supremacy. So because skin color is the most kind of definitive marker of our race um, and our culture and, 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 and identifies us and locates us in space, I think that's why we become so dumbfounded in a particular way when we see folks attempting to change the color of their skin. But particularly when we think about diaspora, there's so many ways in which we perform um, our relationship to white supremacy. So, you know, Kim might lighten her skin somewhere else. Someone is straightening their hair somewhere, somewhere else. A parent is naming their child John as opposed to Kofi. Somewhere else the school is telling you you can't speak your native tongue because you have to speak English and not just English but the king's English. And so, again, I know that skin color is, 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 is drastic, it's extreme, but I also want us to think about where we all fall on that trajectory. John Morgan. I was thinking to her latter point about how easy it is to sort of pathologize Kim because her trauma is so external, you know, and, and actually bleaching period, right? Because we, for people who don't bleach, uh, you know, they, we, we have really strong opinions about it. And it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's such a, a blatant sign of what we look at as a kind of internalized ra uh, uh, racial hatred that we, it's easy, it's really easy to point a finger at. But, you know, I always laugh when, you know, Yava makes these kinds of joking um, but very telling um, comments on social media about people, the, the kind of emoji that they, you know, what, you know, we have different shades of emojis. Mm. And she, you know, she points out the fact that like some people use shades of emojis that might be two shades lighter than you actually are <laughs> um, <laughs> in, in real life. Or you know, when or you're posting a selfie, the filter you use may make you look three mm. shades lighter. Like I think that um, the that that because Europeanness has long been. Um, the kind of world dominant beauty norm that everybody interacts with and some people interact with it and they go the exact opposite you know they they love their skin brown they want their hair natural some people love their chocolate skin but 
may want to weave, like, you know, down to their behind. So in some ways, I think that focusing on the bleaching industry um, is, is, is really easy. Um, you know, when I went to Paris, there's a whole black section that is like, I don't remember the streets, but it, it's, it's like the black beauty section. And there are a ton of beauty supply stores, and they are huge, and they're all run by um, they're all they're owned and run by mostly African women, um, West African women, and the the first two the first half of the stores you walk in, the first third of the stores as you walk in are all bleaching creams, and then it's like hair products are the next um, biggest products. So we're all sort of complete, you know, in terms of like the fact that there's an economic gain for it. There are multiple levels of complicity there, as, as Yabba pointed out, the people who are making it, but also the people who are sort of the middlemen who purchase purchase from, like, the actual um, people who are producing it and then resell it. So I don't, I don't even know where you begin to scratch the surface as, like, how do we address it, what do we do about it, because this is where – um, it's so deeply personal. I don't even know what the politicized conversation could address. Closing thought to you, Lene Denise. I'm thinking about the number of songs that are about bleaching and how it's become a part of a sort of diasporic musical soundtrack as well. The way that um, you know ideas or themes around skin bleaching shows up in Nollywood films. Um, I think that you know there there is cultural evidence of resistance, of acceptance, of this battle, of this conversation. Um, I know that, and I mean, this is more of an American context, I was thinking about this movement in the 90s to identify black-owned hair and skin products. There was like a symbol that, you know, black manufacturers of skin and hair products were using to identify themselves um, so that we would not be fooled into investing in and growing these businesses that actively um, preyed on you know, um, internalized hate. Um, so for folks in L.A., we became conscious. I mean, and this just that tension between, for example, Korean shop owners and, uh, you know, in black neighborhoods that were seen as sort of predatorial for bringing in whatever it was, nail salons, hair weave, whatever it was that kind of, can, you know, helped aided us in this kind of remaking and reimagining of ourselves um, was something that I was conscious of as a young person. Um and then, I mean, I just remember asking questions like, what does the research look like for global corporations that create products for our bodies that match this, like, you know, collective aspiration for whiteness? Um, I remember being in Mozambique and walking through, like, a sort of like a farmer's market and coming up on this store that sold, like, it felt like over 100 brands of skin bleaching creams and and then I know you're doing work around you know beauty shops Yaba so it'd be interesting to learn about what you discover if it does become sort of like a global endeavor because I'm just interested in the role that this that these beauty supply stores play in the conversation. I think we're reminded again and again that um, the individual and the institutional are intertwined and interconnected and uh, as you always say, Dr. Yababla, that line between preference and pathology is is thin, deeply um, um, thin. And we need to take care that we think about it globally, institutionally, and not do the finger pointing that becomes so easy. Little Kim, we think about her with, with some compassion, with some love. I come 
close by. Someone murdered. Nobody seen, nobody heard it. Just another funeral service. We'll get at you. Come through shining a yap you. And broad daylight kidnap you. Let's get clapped through. Police stay on us like tattoos. It's only grind cause we have to. Money is power. Sling. Things come through every hour. It's all about that dollar. And we no deal with cowards. Weak lamb get devoured by the lion in the concrete jungle. The strong standing rumble. The weak fold and crumble. It's the land of trouble. Brooklyn, home of the greatest rappers. Big comes first and the cream comes after. Now put your lighters up. Bed style, put your lighters up. Nearly put your lighters up. DC, keep putting your lighters up. Philadelphia, put your lighters up. Detroit. Put your lighters up, shine down, keep putting them lighters up, no matter where you're from, put your lighters up. That was our main event conversation. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Dr. Yeba Blay, Joan Morgan, Lene Denise. This Spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in 3FM's across studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the United States. We are on air in West Africa, on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 Lagos, Nigeria. And we're online via podcast. Never should I enemies love. We get it on where we live. When you cross that bridge. Time for the first of our hot topics, a congressional caucus on black women and girls. The very first. Three black women made history on March 22nd when they gathered to form the very first congressional caucus on black women and girls. U.S. Representatives Bonnie Watson Coleman, a Democrat from New Jersey, Robin Kelly, a Democrat from Illinois, and Yvette D. Clark, a Democrat from New York, confirmed the news. The caucus is described as a group devoted to creating public policy that eliminates significant barriers and disparities experienced by black women. It is the first of 430 registered congressional caucuses and member organizations specifically designed to make black women and girls a priority. At the Library of Congress, the first symposium by this congressional caucus was just held. Speakers included academics, activists, organizers, mothers of now buried babies at the hands of the state. Professor Melissa Harris-Perry was one of the presenters, and she focused on just how the U.S. failed black women and girls. Another powerful speaker was Miss Geneva Reed Veal, Sandra Bland's mother. Sandra Bland, dead at 28 found hanged in a Texas jail cell in July 2015 after being pulled over on her way home from buying groceries. A grand jury returned a ruling of no indictment on Christmas Eve that same year. Here's what Ms. Geneva said. I am here representing the mothers who are not heard. I am here representing the mothers who have lost children as we go on about our daily lives. When the cameras and the lights are gone, Our babies are dead, and life goes on. So I'm here asking you today to wake up. Wake up. By a show of hands, can anybody in the room tell me the other six women who died in jail July 2015, along with Sandra Bland? That is a problem. You all are among the walking dead. I heard about Trayvon, I heard about 
all of the shootings, all of the deaths in custody, and it did not bother me until they hit my door. I was walking dead just like you. Until Sandra Bland died in a jail cell in Texas. I will continue to speak for every mother who is paralyzed because of the loss of their child. The tears are real. The pain is real. The problem is real. So I don't come here playing games with you all. I don't come here to sit and be a part of another caucus where we talk and we do nothing. I am going to be the one that's going to sit at that table. Because you, 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 you don't know my pain. God forbid, do not walk up to another grieving mother and say to her, you know what she feels, because you do not. Am I angry? Absolutely. Let's talk the very first Congressional Caucus on Black Women and Girls. Lene Denise, let me start with you. The speculative fiction writer Adrienne Marie Brown said that she would like to see Harriet Tubman's face show up on our policies and politics. Um, I think this is a step in that direction. Um, but like what, you know, what Ms. Melissa Harris-Paris said, what took so, so long? Um, my work in the nonprofit industry started with an organization that served black women in prison. So I've become hyper aware of the ways in which black women are rendered invisible in conversations about mass incarceration. And as an extension of that, you know, I know that we are understudied in terms of our collective economic standing mental and physical health issues, education, and our unique relationships to poverty and violence. So Melissa Harris's um, speech was incredibly moving and important. Um, and so, you know, at the same time, I really appreciated her commitment to um, our own agency. Um, so I am inspired, and she talks about the spirit of this black girl magic and black magic womanism that I think um, – is due in large part by the women on the front lines of the Black Lives Matters movement, um, Patrice and Alicia and Opal, and also the work that like Dream Hampton, whose activist work influences policy and major cultural shifts happen. Like I think that, you know, the sort of echoing effect of their, of their not necessarily leadership, because I understand this is a leaderless movement, but just their voices have absolutely inspired a certain kind of attention on issues um, affecting black women. So, it was great for Melissa Harris Perry to talk about that untouchable joy that we still have access to as we ask these questions um, and, and begin to rectify some of the issues and challenges that prevent our health and our, you know, our, our well-being rather and social mobility. Um, but the pursuit of pleasure in the midst of those struggles remain um, a key part of that, of that well-being, um, which is why I believe that people ride so hard for Beyonce. Um, I think her work seems to be giving many of us joy in the face of the institutionalized violence that um, creates the need for the caucus. Um, and so I also have faith that black trans women will be considered in this important conversation in this work. And I see an important push for that inclusion. Um, Melissa Harris Paris um, included, you know, issues that are unique, the unique positioning of black trans women in this conversation as well. So I think that this is just an incredibly awesome, inspiring, and motivating form of work and attention placed on the bodies of black women um, or black folks who identify as women. And, um, and I'm totally invested in paying attention and, and bringing my voice to that. Dr. Yababale. Listening to Dr. Harris Perry's testimony, 
I felt like this is testimony that um, not only Congress needs to hear, but we all need to hear, um, because I was reminded for whatever reason, and as much as this is a victory, I was also kind of reminded of um, how this is going to be an ongoing quote-unquote fight, right? Because when I reflect on the moment when my brother's keeper, for example, was instituted and the ways in which people rallied behind it, and we saw article after article and even just personal reflections um, on the necessity for my brother's keeper, I asked myself, um, why wasn't I seeing more attention given to this victory? Uh, Why weren't even um, we ourselves talking about this? Um, And so it just reminds me that, you know, it's a push that goes beyond even these initiatives. It's a push that we make in our work. It's a push that we have to make in the conversations that we're having. But I don't know, for whatever reason, it just continues to – sadden me, for lack of a better word, that, you know, Melissa Harris-Perry even has to give us all of this information, all of these stats, and we're almost, even those of us who do this work, we're constantly having to remind people that we're human <laughs> and that we, were, we, we deserve this attention, that if our lives are in danger, then we also deserve protection. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just reminded of, of how much more work we still have to do. Joe Morgan? The importance of this moment and this work cannot be overemphasized. So this is a this is a good thing. However, when I when I experience it, I I I'm not I'm not experiencing it yet as I I looked at I look at it as a a victory in a, a very long battle. Um my hope is that when we think about the state of blackness um, and how we combat these various deeply institutional, institutionalized and pervasive forms of racism that still exist in 2016, that we don't organize around gender and separate and, and separateness. Like so, for me, this is a victory because these issues obviously need this kind of lens to be addressed. But for me, the real overall victory, when I know that, like, we are well on the way to winning this battle um, against uh, racism and patriarchy and sexism, particularly in the way that it impacts all black people, is when we don't have to think, we don't have to come up with initiatives because the first line of thought was how to rescue black men. And because it comes after... Um, my brother's keeper, there is a way that this feels like, really? Did we really have it? Why couldn't my brother's keeper be an initiative for black folk that paid attention to the range of gender that is represented in black people? Um, And I realize that I guess we're just not there yet, but I really hope that that's where we're we're going, that, um, that, the same people who can organize, you know, our brilliant president can see that black men are struggling, that there is that there is no moment where you think that black women are not struggling too or that that needs to be um, separate and equal. I think that this has to move towards the kind of gender consciousness and um, 
equality that we see lived out in the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that that, for me, is really the goal and the end game. And this is necessary, but this is not where we should rest. The formation of this first Congressional Caucus on Black Women and Girls was the result of dedicated work by a whole group of uh, women, women of color, and they formed part of the She Woke Committee. So the spin names each of them and salutes their work. So, swagger salute. Nakisha M. Lewis, Ifeoma Ike. Sharon Cooper, Cherise Stansel Ashford. Shambulia Gatson Sams, Tiffany Hightower. Avis Jones DeWeaver. And a swagger salute to Monica Dennis of the Black Lives Matter New York chapter, who played a pivotal organizing role in all of this. We see you, we name you, and we salute you. Time for Hot Topic 2, Why Black Men Should Be Feminists. That's the title of a series by Ebony.com in partnership with the Ms. Foundation. Thought leaders are sharing stories of black men engaging with ideas of feminism and gender equality and how such engagement might help with the cancers of toxic masculinity, patriarchy and sexism. For black men, there are additional issues. Writer Michael Denzel Smith writes about, quote, the good black man. Smith argues the notion is problematic, paralyzes growth, and should be traded for honesty. Former footballer and activist Wade Davis talked about the mask of masculinity in his recent TED Talk. Take a listen to Wade Davis. We raise young boys to wear a mask of toughness in order to be a man. And we rob them of their childhood and their innocence. And sport is one of the many vehicles that parents choose to help their kids put on these masks. And as little boys, we learn that being labeled tough grants you a certain type of social capital. Let's talk feminist black men, the good black man, the need for honesty, and the mask of masculinity. Joan Morgan. I think a lot of things about this. One is that I have been um, in the kind of heightened uh, immediacy that's produced by social media. I I make it a commitment um, as a feminist and a scholar to kind of look at the long view of things, at least for as long as I've been working um, around these issues. And so I have to start by saying that when I started writing about this stuff like 20 years ago, uh, 25 25 years ago, I guess at this point, I could not imagine that I could see this conversation in Ebony Magazine. Um, The conversation was really more focused around um, could black women – adopt the term feminism and really uh, rock it. So this to me is, is um, an incredible step forward from what I could have ever uh, imagined. I think when Mark Anthony Neal wrote New Black Man and declared himself feminism, the kind of shock and conversation around that is really, um, we've come a long way, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, At the same time, you know, I think that this is really um, a good thing. I think, think, however, there's probably conversation that still needs to be explored um, before before we can see uh, large numbers of black men even examining this question, which is really reckoning with um, black male privilege. 
And I feel that, you know, Michael is touching on that when he says the question of, like, you know, kind of positioning yourself as a good black man who doesn't, who, who, who doesn't oppress women, who treats black women, and you've already lost out the game, that um, we have to be honest around this notion of uh, male privilege that does extend to black men. And I, that is the conversation, actually, that I think precedes this, that I don't know how many of them are ready for. Does he ever play? You know, as someone who teaches courses on, on black feminism, um, this is a conversation in a section that we always have to engage in terms of men's role in the feminist movement, particularly speaking of black men, when we historicize our participation within the, the, the feminist um, movement. And so for me, um, like Joan, I do think this is, this is great, um, particularly that it's, a public conversation being had um, in a very black publication. Um, I'll just add to that that I think it's also important when we have these conversations um, to engage black men on this question of whether or not they should be feminists or rather why they should be feminists. I think we also have to, um, well, for me at least just in terms of an approach, I think part of the conversation um, is about defining feminism in a way that makes sense and that they can see applicable to their lived experiences, perhaps. I think sometimes when we limit our definition of feminism to gender equality, it may not move them. But if we perhaps um, consider the fact that most of our feminism is about addressing and attacking systems of power, um, patriarchy as a system of power and oppression, and relating that to their blackness and their maleness, um, and understanding how that system of, of, of oppression oppresses them um, as black men. And so for me, you know, reading both of the pieces connected to this conversation, I was also interested about, you know, process, um, how we have the conversation, um, questions about who should be having the conversation, should this be a conversation in an all-male space, you know, what is our role um, as black feminists, black women feminists, um, in engaging this conversation. Um, and so just a lot of questions, but also, like Joan, I see this as a, as a great moment. Lene Denise? I think another way to facilitate this discussion is to look at the legacy of sexism or black male patriarchy and the work of some of our most brilliant and beloved thinkers, such as Baldwin and, and Malcolm and Du Bois and King. Um, and I try to do that in my classroom in hopes that people can feel less shame about where they enter the conversation. Um, and, you know, I'm very invested in understanding how men come to develop or people who identify as male come to develop a relationship with feminism. Um, I think that Wade's investigation into the different ideas of the different kind of entry points among people who identify as male is really important, especially in learning that, you know, some of the folks that he spoke, out of the many people that he interviewed and spoke to, um, the sort of most positive response to feminism and, and the willingness to embrace it came from folks who, from male-identified folks who have daughters, um, which I think is important. So there's some work there to do, even to kind of look at and critically examine the sort of fear of, of the feminine anyway that would kind of discourage anyone from investing in what it means to, like we said earlier, see black women as whole beings. Um, 
My pedagogical work in the classroom includes the inclusion of work of men who identify as feminists now. So I think that <clears throat> it's been useful to use the work of men like Keise Lehman and um, Robin Kelly, Kalama Yasalam, and definitely Mark Anthony Neal to introduce their particular brands of feminism to male-identified students in my class. Um, and we can also learn from talking about what it means for women to unlearn internalized patriarchy, what it means to include trans male voices in this discussion, um, and just the kind of many layers that exist around the conversation of feminism and gender. Um, I think that the good black man syndrome to look at the many ways that gender equality or feminism in particular could and should be engaged um, is a really important place. And so I appreciated Michael Denzel's assertion that the desire to be seen and known as a good black man is not only wrapped up in a lot of patriarchal notions about what constitutes manhood and defining the stereotypes of blackness, but it doesn't allow for growth. So I think like kind of managing all of these conversations and particularly in the classroom where I do have a certain kind of captured or captive audience and can have these discussions um, and actually have the text and the historical context to, you know, talk about something that does feel relatively new um, among black male-identified bodies, whether it's in the barbershop, on the basketball court. I think that it's important to think about how feminism and the definitions of it land um, in those sort of like male-centered spaces. But I agree that it's a, it's a, I, am a, I am very curious about process. I'm curious about inclusion. Um, I'm curious about what texts are used. I'm curious about class um, and how all of those things sort of inform what kinds of conversations you can have. I am less interested in whether or not black men are feminist, but I'm definitely interested in them exploring a masculinity that allows for an emotional literacy that we don't see. So I think about the importance of whole black women. I also think about the importance of whole black men and what is required to create a process that allows them access to the kind of um, emotionality that impacts behavior. So I am uninterested in a debate about what black men think about the term feminism, but I'm particularly interested in a process that allows them to access the totality of their emotionality so they become less harmful and traumatizing in their communities, in their families, in their societies, and in, in movements. So for me, whether or not black men ever adopt the, 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 the term when it comes to masculinity is something that, that doesn't interest me, but the nature of the kinds of processes that can be adopted so that the, the, the toxic masculinity that causes so much trauma in communities to themselves, to um, the women of those communities within society, is really important. And I think that um, um, I think about what is helpful that allows that process to move forward. And so um, does the engagement of feminism help? It absolutely does. Where it does not or where it creates the kind of alienation that doesn't allow the men to engage the work, I would just say abandon the term and deal with the process and the work. Um, the nature of um, traditional masculinity is rigid and restricting and harmful to, to men first and then across the board. And within that harm, 
there is the reality of the um, privilege. And of course, men are so attached to the, the nature of the harm, especially for, for black men, the reality of the harm in a racist society that the, even the idea of the privilege doesn't get engaged. And finding ways to engage with that conversation is really challenging. So for me, just as there are a minority of women who self-define as um, um, feminist, for me, when it comes to masculinity, the question is always going to be um, process. How do we create an emotionally literate masculinity? What, how do we cr create a masculinity that has the kind of emotion, emotional literacy that transforms behavior? And wherever that process can work, that is definitely where I'm interested to stay and to, to stand. This bin has a final word uh, this week for... Afini Shakur, who just passed away. May 4th, in fact. Afini Shakur, freedom fighter, lifelong activist, Black Panther Party member, mama of hip-hop artist Tupac. Well, here's Afini from a talk she gave on race, revolution, unity, religion back in 2008. There's so much healing to be done in our places. You got to stand for something. When I was in the Black Panther Party, Rwanda had not happened. It had not happened. So I was still believing like most used to be Pan-Africanists that, my God, the joy is for us to all unite as Africans. We can unite Africa and we can do something great because it's a great, massive continent. And we are great people and we are good people. and. Mothers and kings and queens and my God, look at what the kings did. Are we going to look? If we don't look today, we're going to have to look again tomorrow. And where are the women? Don't play with me. Don't play with me. Where are the women? Where are your stories? You all tell those stories. Find them stories and tell them. They don't have to be cute. If you don't do it, we will be erased. Afini Shakur, rest in peace, dear mama. You are appreciated. That's your hour. Thank you to Lene Denise, Dr. Yaba Blay, Joan Morgan. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Follow me on Twitter at Esther Armar. Put the Spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk, where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armar. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. NPR Distribution and the Public Radio Satellite System.